Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 10, we have a super special guest. Gary Tan is a designer and engineer turned early stage investor as a managing partner and co-founder at Initialize Capital. In 2019, Gary was listed at number 21 on the Forbes Midas list, having invested in Instacart, Coinbase, Flexport, PlanGrid, HelloSign, and many others. Prior to YC, Gary was a co-founder of blog platform Posturus, acquired by Twitter in 2012. Before that, he was employee number 10 at Palantir, where he was a founding member of the engineering team for Palantir's financial analysis product and also designed Palantir's logo. He has a BS in computer systems engineering from Stanford, and you can find him on his weekly startup vlog on YouTube and Instagram, and his videos are packed with valuable advice for entrepreneurs. Gary is incredibly talented and insightful, and I think what struck me most about our conversation is how humble, thoughtful, and empathetic he is. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Gary Tan. Gary, thanks for joining me on the Paradox Podcast. We're about three weeks into the shelter-in-place order here in the Bay Area, and I think we're really the first region to, to move pretty aggressively with putting that in place. And we're obviously recording from our respective quarantine locations, so still very much under some level of lockdown. How are you doing on a personal level, and how do you think this battle against COVID-19 is going? Oh, I'm good. Um, the hardest part is the childcare, as you probably know as well. I've been really worried about coronavirus since January. Once you actually saw what China did, I think once you've been there, you realize that they're not going to do things that are um, totally unnecessary. And that was one of my major fears. You know, is that what it would take to sort of tamp down on it? And now that we're seeing the curve starting to flatten, or at least the models are indicating that we're flattening the curve, uh, that's a huge relief to me. And there's a you know, sort of, we're not done. We're not near the peak yet. It's still mm-hmm. a few weeks out. But to see this outside of China and to see this shelter in place actually having an effect and being very thankful for San Francisco, for California, and for the leadership of, you know, at least our side of the country, it's really great. You know, it, currently it looks like we will have enough ICU beds in California for the cases that are expected. And that means really, really great things for you know, the people of California. And so yeah. that's, that's the best we can hope for. Yeah, I, I share your sort of cautious optimism. I think that earlier on, probably in January and February, when I was following folks like Balaji and Scott Gottlieb that were doing really great citizen journalism, I would say I was more worried because it felt like these folks were sounding the alarm, but there was not any urgency at all within the 
general populace, within the media, within sort of the government to take this very seriously. And so I probably felt sort of most worried about COVID-19 in February, as you saw kind of this this train wreck coming and we were totally unprepared for it. But then as a level of concern really ratcheted up, I felt more confident that we might have a chance at actually battling against it. And I think the thing that's so interesting is each city, each state almost has its own curve. And so we're seeing a curve in Washington state that looks very different than the curve in say New York city or even the curve in San Francisco. But we can look internationally to Italy and certainly South Korea and other countries that handled it far better than we did and have some optimism that we might be able to get through this hopefully sooner rather than later. Paul Graham had an amazing essay that came out yesterday about this, that you can tell a lot about countries and their media by how they handled this crisis. And his exhortation was, we should probably remember this. We should remember the initial reaction from some of the people that there was skepticism about about the research, about science, about you know the medical opinion that was coming out. And that matters. But it, it matters to our government and it matters to how we make decisions and policy if we respect science, frankly. And we're sort of in this post-fact reality. And <laughs> yeah. it's never been more important. You know, you can see this in you know the response of South Korea and Taiwan. You know, those societies still respect science and medicine and you know the worst was sort of staved off. Yeah, they still respect science and medicine on one hand, but they also generally respect individual liberty on the other hand. And so it's a great model for us. We don't have to go the China direction of a pretty harsh authoritarianish lockdown, which was effective for them in the end. There's a lot of free societies, Japan, South Korea, that did much better than this that we did. We're just going to have to make some cultural adjustments to really be able to live in this new world. And I agree with you that whether it's taking some lessons from this about how the media handled this, how our government handled it, even down to just basic individual things like hygiene and potentially wearing a mask and public transportation. There's some things in our cultural DNA that we should adopt and program into our society that will give us more resilience against stuff like this in the future. So yeah. I'm, I'm optimistic about some of the longer tail effects as well. Yeah. My partner, Alexis Ohanian, who he created Reddit. And one of the things he's been talking about is the realization that there is a fifth estate. So, mm. you know, first three estates, obviously the three branches of government, uh, fourth estate being media as a check on that. And then now there's a fifth estate that is uh, citizen journalism in the form of, you know, Balaji Srinivasan. You definitely highlighted that very fundamentally for me. And it was astonishing how few people sort of took that very seriously early on. And then yeah. now it became our reality. But that's what we get to see all of the time. That's one of the most exciting things about society today is that the internet will sort of present truth to us earlier and we get to sort of determine what we believe uh, sooner. Absolutely. So that's a positive view of yeah. where it's going. You know, decentralizing media in a sense by having the rise of citizen journalists and also uh, just as consumers and contributors to that discussion online, we're all able to make up our minds for ourselves. And we already have to question everything. You know, it's been demonstrated very clearly in this crisis that these narratives just shift so fast from like absolutely mass or ineffective to now mass or recommended. We've, we've seen like these narratives shift on, you know, just the flu to, oh, well, the flu is worse to, oh my gosh, the world is ending. And we've, we've gone like the full gamut on these narratives in the course of like 30 days on like multiple sort of narrative arcs. So I think it's been a great lesson and I think we'll see a lot of decentralized 
media and citizen journalists coming up out of this, and hopefully like a million biologies will bloom out of the, the wake of this. So uh, I'm optimistic about that for sure. Uh, switching gears a little bit, so you're a full-time investor and managing partner at Initialized Capital. How has your sort of energy or focus shifted as this pandemic has ramped up here in the United States? Yeah, the great thing about how Initialized works is we're actually eight partners and we you know, are able to work completely remote. So how we even make decisions is through software. We have two rounds of blind voting. A lot of our discussion happens over Zoom and Slack. And we sort of built the firm from the beginning to be uh, remote first. So the only difference is I have a much shorter commute. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. We'll get back to investing and, and founding companies and, and building startups in a little bit. But could you share a story from your childhood that really strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, absolutely. I grew up in the Bay Area, and one of the hardest things to realize now as someone who works in tech is the level of mistrust of tech in the Bay Area when, you know, I'm a townie. You know, I grew up in Fremont. I, you know, studied uh, at Berkeley while I was in high school. I went to Stanford for undergrad, and tech actually brought me from uh, a very hard time in my life when I was a child. You know, I was a child of immigrants. My father struggled with alcoholism. My mom was a nurse assistant. She didn't speak English you know, very well. She had a hearing impediment. And, you know, we moved around a lot as a kid. You know, I, my dad got sick from his alcoholism. I remember being at times food insecure, you know, growing up in one and two bedroom apartments. And, you know, what really saved me was computers. I discovered how powerful media could be. And, you know, the thing that got me into computers was actually my seventh grade teacher knew that I was really into desktop publishing. So this is, you know, right before the website became a thing, before the internet became a thing, you could go into, you know, Adobe PageMaker, I think it was Aldous PageMaker at the time, and you could make page layouts just like a newspaper, only you could publish it yourself. And then I needed a way to get it out to my classmates uh, in seventh grade. And my teacher, Mrs. Whitaker, took my sort of 10 pages of, you know, underground newspaper and photocopied it for, you know, the 100 students in my class. And that became part of what made me learn how to make web pages. And I loved being that young, putting up a web page that was a zine, and then having basically adults read it like it was written like a normal newspaper. Yeah. Um, you know, it wasn't that advanced, but I guess that's uh, the level of internet discourse. If you, you know, your <laughs> 14 year old can pass, uh, you know, nobody knows that you're a dog on the internet, right? But that's what taught me how to code. That's what opened up the internet to me when I was, you know, 12, 14, 16. And that became a very fundamental part of my life. And my first jobs uh, making web pages actually helped me help my parents pay for their down payment for their home. Wow. And so for the internet, you know, this know-how, this ability to create things for other people became a very fundamental part of my life. And that's why today I, I just really want a lot more people to participate in that. That's yeah. sort of one of my, you know, foundational memories is that technology has remade my life and is remaking so many lives. And I just want a lot more of that, right? And we're just at the beginning end of it. Like people talk about history being, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in the 60s? Wouldn't it be great to live, you know, in the time of Jesus? It, wouldn't it be great to live in like all of these other times? And I'm like, wouldn't it be great to live right now? Because right, <laughs> right now when is the where internet it's came online. No, exactly. That's, right. I, that's an awesome story. And there's actually so much to unpack there. It sounds like 
there was probably kind of this magic moment where you're creating almost your first product. It's a, it's a newspaper and you're online and you're learning to code and to build uh, something from scratch, literally something out of nothing, right? Kind of the zero to one moment that's very special. And then you have uh, teachers printing stuff out, handling distribution for you. So it must have been kind of that very first moment of, oh, this is what creation is like. This is kind yeah, of totally. what entrepreneurship is like. And probably at that age, you didn't fully have the context uh, or the understanding of what that fully would become. But it certainly was a seed that got planted that altered the entire course of your life. And you also mentioned like sort of the temporal, the timing nature of these things. And it's almost like that story 10 years prior or 10 years later may not have been as profound. You were kind of like mm. right at that moment, right? That special moment where the spark of the internet was just getting lit. And so yeah. that's a, that that's is true a right now. Like there's, you know, a 16 year old or 12 year old out there right now who right. is discovering this, but instead of making, you know, underground newspaper, they're making an app. They're making a website. There's so much happening right now. It might be on TikTok. Exactly. So we're still so early in the cycle of what the internet and what technology can do to help us create things from scratch that it's not too late, I think is an is a important message for people to understand. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mark Andreessen, when he came to the Bay Area from UIUC, I think that's one thing he talks about that... Um, he felt like he missed it, you know, the, the desktop revolution, personal computers, a computer on every desk and in every home, that had already happened and he had missed it. And, you know, this is the creator of the web browser. Yeah, it's good perspective, I think, to, to keep in our minds as we contextualize these things. So your background, obviously, you started early on coding websites and you have an engineering background. You were employee number 10, Palantir, founder of Hosteris, which was acquired by Twitter. Now that you're an investor, what do you miss about being a founder and an engineer? And I think on some level, you're still an entrepreneur because you've started with your co-founder, Alexis, this firm. But what do you miss about kind of being in the trenches and building day to day? I think the biggest thing, it's actually really mundane and it sounds insane to say because it's also the part that most founders really can't stand. Um, but I miss the cycle of getting an email from a real user who uses your software and then it's broken for them or you know, it just doesn't quite do what they want. And being able to take that, go into the code editor, fix the thing, roll the website and then reply within an hour. Oh yeah, that thing, it got fixed. And I've actually ended up making some of my closest professional friends from that. People who I still we've, you know, follow each other to this day from the kernel of that sort of moment. It's you know, really, really fast cycle times and then building relationships literally through the software that you make is uh, something I miss a lot. Yeah, I guess one of the most stark contrasts between being an entrepreneur and being an investor are the cycle times. Because when you're an entrepreneur, you're shipping stuff all the time, you're talking to customers, you're getting feedback, like you said, from people that are using your product. And the cycle times are crazy fast. And the learning curve as a result is, is generally steep. I think investing is tough because the time horizon on when you understand whether you're doing a good job is much longer. Sometimes it's five, 10 years before you even understand whether your investments are paying off. So you look at probably other signals to figure out if things are going well. What are some of the signals that you look at now to kind of keep you in that creative flow? Honestly, I am really blessed to be able to work with founders, period, because you get to see that story play out week to week, month to month. And I think that our role as sort of soft advisors is that at best, it's sort of like being a chiropractor. It's like minor adjustments that end up becoming much bigger 
uh, impact. And that's um, what we're sort of hoping for. Mm, that's an awesome analogy. Uh, you created uh, a video a while back. You've been creating lots of awesome videos about your $200 million mistake. And that kind of stuck in my mind as just a really interesting story. And I think that Silicon Valley is littered with these stories of folks that miss joining a company super early or they went one path instead of another. And I think they have to deal with uh, the psychology of maybe missed opportunity because there's just opportunity at times everywhere. And, and so you end up um, missing some really big things. Can you retell that story a little bit and just talk about both the story and the psychology around missed opportunities and maybe your perspective on it now, now that you have some distance from that original story? Yeah, absolutely. I was 22, 23 years old. I had just graduated from Stanford in computer engineering and I went up to Microsoft. It was 2003. So the web felt like it was fully dead by then, which is kind of insane because that was the year I think Facebook got started. And I had spent five years writing database-backed websites. And I said, well, I guess that's over. So that's like the first thing that was wrong. Uh, but that was the narrative, right? And I think that that's something that kind of comes up over and over again in my life, that you kind of can't accept the mainstream narrative all of the time. And I think you're a big believer in this. Like what I learned, certainly from this experience, but over and over again, is that you know, what do you believe that nobody else believes? And in that particular moment, you know, Facebook was spawned in the moment that people thought the web was dead. And that was the exact wrong thing to do, right? So for me, I went off to Windows Mobile. I wanted to work on mobile devices. That was sort of the consensus thing that would be next. And the funny thing about that is the iPhone still didn't come out for another five years. Mm -hmm. So timing matters a lot. And Microsoft was very safe. It gave me great health insurance. My parents were proud of me. And about that time, friends of mine went to start a company with Peter Thiel. And I was one of the first people they called. And so they flew me down um, at his expense. He took me out to dinner at his restaurant, Frison, which I think actually closed very quickly. <laughs> it, was, it was a terrible dinner, actually. But it made for a really great intro in the book where he talked about how terribly overly competitive the restaurant is. Yes, he learned you know, a very, very hard lesson that restaurants are not the kind of things you want to invest in right. or own. <laughs> But he said, hey, what are you doing at Microsoft? You are actually wasting your time. And he was so sure about this that he was willing to write me a check for one whole year's salary. Hmm. Uh, it was a zero risk opportunity for me. And you know, one aspect of privilege that I had at that point that I didn't even realize yet was as someone with a technical background who loved to build, the only risk that I could take is not taking risk. And that was a really crazy inversion at that moment. And that's why it cost me $200 million. I, you know, this was the universe sort of saying, here's the thing that you need to work on. Like, who else could you start a company with other than the people you knew for years had started projects with? Like, mm -hmm. these were, you know, people I had known for a long time and being funded by someone who, you know, maybe he wasn't a billionaire at that moment, but he was extremely well known. In fact, I had asked him to come speak at Stanford multiple times, and he did, and he was very generous with his time. So for these things to all line up, and for me to still say no, hmm. uh, that was a very powerful moment for me to realize, what is reality, right? My reality was really straight off the pages of Time Magazine, perhaps, right? TechCrunch didn't exist yet, Twitter didn't exist yet. I was sort of asleep, in a way. 
Hmm. Um, I was, you know, they were working on enterprise software. Enterprise software was not hot at all. You know, the cool thing to do back then was to work on consumer software. But I think that I spent too much time thinking about what other people thought was hot and especially what the media thought. And the reality is all of those things are the lagging indicator. They're talking about exciting, interesting things happening in rooms that aren't being covered six to nine months after the fact, right? And so, you know, Palantir at that moment was exactly one of those rooms to be in to create the future. And that just sort of happens all of the time. Yeah. It's fascinating too, because it sounds like Peter Thiel was one of the best people that could have given that sort of message to you. Oh, yeah. Because, and obviously referencing zero to one again, he talks about being in this sort of mimetic competition as a lawyer, like in law school and then joining a top tier firm. And then finally realizing I'm competing in this game because society says I should, or maybe my parents are proud of me, or there's a scoreboard that I'm kind of operating against. And just finally realizing I just need to get off this escalator entirely. And I just need to walk out the door and go do something else, which again, with no media, with no cultural narrative out there to support that, that is a truly sort of original thought or what people might call contrarian to be like, yeah, the best thing to do is to leave uh, your law profession or to leave a really great job at Microsoft. So are you a fan of uh, Westworld by any chance? You know what? I watched the first, I think season or two. I lost steam with it to be honest, ever since my daughter was born and it's been Moana and frozen Two, And I know to that, but I I should get back into it because I do have an HBO now. I just, uh, I just bring it up because there's a very deep theme in that no spoilers around awakening, right? Mm -hmm. Both in the sort of, robotic host world, but also in uh, the real world for humans. So, and I think my $200 million mistake is really a little bit of a story of an awakening. Like I was asleep and then I woke up. Yeah. And life has this way of kicking you back onto the path that maybe you were supposed to be on. So you still end up joining as employee number 10 at Palantir. It's not as if you completely missed the Palantir boat. And talk a little bit about just that experience and maybe juxtapose it against your experience at Microsoft in terms of that continued reawakening that occurred as you went off sort of the script that had sort of been laid out for you in your own head. Yeah, not to get too esoteric, but the big realization is that every organization is basically a machine and, you know, individual human beings, we're not, you know, parts of a machine, we're, we're people. <laughs> and then some of us um, who want to take the risk have the ability to make new machines. And that was what I got to see up close and personal, you know, Palantir being worth, you know, multi-billion dollars now, thousands of employees. There were definitely things that you needed to do early on. So what I learned was really how powerful and how important it is to create these new machines. Being a part of Microsoft was really being a cog in a machine that was built many, many years ago on the backs of a few very giant monopolies office and windows. And even when you're at a company like that, that was trying to do something brand new, which was Windows Mobile, it was very hard to sort of leave the orbit of the two major uh, profit centers. Whereas, and this is sort of a a common refrain for me is that I realize it's way more fun to be uh, a pirate than to join the Navy. (laughs) (laughs) There are just some people who are actually built for it, right? Yeah, some people are built for the Navy and some people have the disposition of a pirate. And so you have to sort of pick your your lane on some level. And I think, like you said, there's so much inertia around a Microsoft or a Google or a Facebook at scale. 
that uh, it can be difficult to obviously launch new products there. And if you're someone who really likes that creative process uh, and having a very blank canvas, it makes sense to sort of be drawn towards the pirate side of the ledger. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes back to pure agency. Again, the thing I miss the most about product at some level is that fast feedback loop. But then also the reason why I could do that is that I had 100% agency. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want to create, it's you know short feedback loop plus agency makes a really big difference. But that's also why it's very powerful to go and join a startup and get as much agency as possible and do that. And then that prepares one the most to be the captain of that pirate ship someday down the line. Definitely. I love that we're continuing with the, with the metaphor. Switching gears a little bit, can you talk about how having refugee ancestors that escaped other countries to come to the United States, how that's influenced your worldview? And do you think that having immigrant parents or being an immigrant yourself gives you an advantage when it comes to founding or building a company? Yeah, absolutely. So both my mom's side and my dad's side basically fled sort of the 20th century. I mean, Asia and China in particular was a very intense place to be throughout the 20th century. On my mom's side, uh, my grandfather ran textiles factories in South China. Those factories he had to abandon you know, because of the communist revolution. And they fled to Myanmar where they you know, literally had to take whatever they could, turn it into gold, sew it into their pockets and uh, flee. And then they had to do it again from Myanmar when there was anti-Chinese rebellion. And that honestly is a part of my history and what helped me really understand Bitcoin very early on. We in the West have incredible privilege and, you know, coronavirus sort of just poked that in the face just now that, Mm -hmm. uh, hey, these things are all a little bit made up. Those in power don't have a complete crystal ball. Sometimes they don't act in the ways that they should. And that's sort of the world we live in. All of that really underscores what you get to do here in America. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, that's the beauty of coming to a, a free society. You can run a business the way you want. You have actual ownership and you have rights. And yeah. those are all things that we don't count as blessings nearly as often as we should. Completely. I agree. I don't have immigrant parents, but I think my sense just in meeting with and talking with immigrants across every part of society, from the Uber driver, from Kenya to the founder of a company, I think the common thread or the connective tissue that I always hear is they just have such a deeper appreciation for the freedoms that we have here at a visceral, deep level. And I think that the disadvantage of being born here, and I guess I can say this is someone who was born here and doesn't have immigrant parents is it's very easy to take it all for granted. It's almost like a fish doesn't know it's in water, right? That's its environment. And it just thinks that uh, a free society is the default when really it's, if anything, it's sort of the exception and not the rule throughout history. And so having parents, grandparents that lived through the 20th century, which the majority of it was actually pretty awful. Probably one of the most horrendous in history. I think we tend to have historical revisionism, but yeah, it's just very easy to just completely lose gratitude around the freedoms that we have. And I think that's why gratitude is such an important thing to try to instill in your life to to try to gain perspective. And I think the coronavirus thing, to your point, it has sort of put a pause on society and given us a moment to reflect on okay, this is a really challenging situation. There's an economic crisis, there's a health crisis, people are losing their jobs, people are losing their lives. This is a dark time. But a bit of the paradox there is that, you know, it's been a real blessing to spend time with my family. So 
hopefully that gratitude is something that we can build a muscle around. Absolutely. This is maybe a little bit of a connected question. It actually stems from a, a tweet that you fired off. I think it was at the end of last year. But do you think that sort of this belief in free markets, which is, in my opinion, connected to a free society, is declining in the West? And what might be some of the factors that are causing people to lose faith in the free market as a vehicle for lifting people up out of poverty, out of dire circumstances? I think certainly your backstory that you shared earlier in the conversation is, in my opinion, that is the epitome of the American dream. But talk a little bit about that and whether you think the American dream is is still alive and well or whether it's on a respirator. No, I mean, honestly, you know, testimony, you know, God bless America. I naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And anytime I uh, go to another country and then come back, honestly, I want to kiss the ground because there's a lot here that we totally take for granted. You know, I think it's a tough time. To your point, I think people are forgetting what we have. And I think the, the hardest part is probably around the argument around privilege. The reality is like, we all have a crazy amount of privilege. And then at the same time, there is sort of this ongoing debate around exceptionalism and whether or not people should strive or can strive. I hope that we never lose that. You know, I think that people can really fundamentally affect their, their life through their own hands. And as long as that's reflected sort of in society, I think that there's a chance, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's hard to ask people to take personal responsibility. At the same time, we need systems that are fair. And, it, you know, I also see that other side. There are definitely systemic, totally systemic flaws in society around this stuff. And we're not done fixing those, right? Yeah. And so it's not purely a right versus left thing. I think it's both. Yeah, I totally agree. It's, we have a two-front war where we need to continue to fight for quality of opportunity, expanding opportunity for more people. We have so much work to do on that front without question. And anybody that pretends that we don't, I think, is completely kidding themselves. On the other hand, I think you mentioned agency earlier and the importance of agency, whether it's starting a company or just in your own life and having a sense of efficacy that you can really have an impact on the way your life goes. And we want to encourage that at the same time as we're trying to fix uh, and improve society at the systemic level. And I think in some ways they're interrelated. The more people that are able to leverage the agency and the gifts that they have and the talents they have to do good and to create things of value, I think you have more people that will be helpful in the fight to change and fix the systemic problems as well. And so the bad scenario is where on both fronts, you say, look, things are really bad things are broken across the board and we have very little chance of fixing them. And so you sort of demotivate people on the agency side and you say, because things are messed up, you don't really have a chance of achieving whatever you want to achieve. That's where our chances of actually keeping the American dream alive probably do start to decline on some level because perception on some level is reality. People have to believe this stuff. America is just really a set of ideas and beliefs. And we all come from different backgrounds and different families and different religions. And that's the beautiful thing about America is this melting pot. But if we lose faith in some of the ideas, some of the core ideas that have really pulled us together, particularly when, especially prior to coronavirus, we've been very pulled apart and very polarized. I think that is a cultural challenge that I, I worry about. But more people need to hear yeah, yeah. from people like you. I mean, I think that technology has a role to play here, 
because the stagnant view of society is that this is all zero-sum. And there are many, many zero-sum games in the world, and the only lever we have is actually technology. Can one plus one equal three? I think that over and over again, increasingly, you know, that can be true. The more we have people who are founders, who are making companies that are actually solving real problems, you know, that's just pure value that gets sort of sent out into society. And if we can make the pie bigger, then that's how we make space for everyone. That's right. Um, and technology is literally the thing in society that is the most growth mindset. And that's why I think it's very, very important to foster new innovation and new companies and to get more people to start these companies. Because if someone's right, then we have a service that you know, makes society better, like it or not, right? It's not perfect. Anytime you move the cheese, like there are people who get hurt. And I think tech leaders do need to spend time thinking about that. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. <laughs> you know, there is still a march forward. And, you know, it's easy to say it's going backwards. I think we're going forwards. And as long as people are thoughtful about how this is happening, I'm still pro tech, you know? Yeah. I'm still a technological utopian. Like I think that we can get to, you know, Gene Roddenberry's plan for. <laughs> for a technological. Society, you know? I don't know if I'm a technological utopian, but I'm certainly a tech optimist. I think tech is a it's a tool, right? And this is why I worry a lot about more of the societal layer underneath it. And these things are intertwined, so they're very complex. But I think that if we motivate people and empower people and tech leaders. Uh, look at these things with a great sense of empathy around what they're doing and, and the changes that they're leading to because they are building a different world. They're essentially seeing a world that they want to build and they're trying to create it, which is very hard. And I think if it's done in the right way with the right empathy and the right kind of motivations, I, I do think we can definitely improve the world. And I think that you mentioned building things that matter and solving real problems. Chris Dixon wrote that famous blog post about the idea maze. Uh, and, and navigating the idea maze as a founder. Can you talk a little bit about how you think about the idea maze and how it influences maybe the founders that you choose to bet on? Yeah, I mean, I love Chris and, you know, he was one of my angel investors when we were working on my startup in 2008. Um, such a brilliant guy. But the idea maze is really sort of a true north around this because I actually posted a video this morning on, you know, why now, why you, right? So actually taking a step back, the idea maze is, fascinating because it sort of presupposes itself a tournament model. You know, Silicon Valley starts off at the top with many, many people who were trying to start all kinds of different startups, solving sometimes similar or, you know, same space type problems. And then they go off into the maze and some of them uh, hit a brick wall and then the startup dies and some of them make it all the way to the center of the maze and they win. And then you have a multi-billion dollar startup. And so the salient fact of that is, can you tell what is going on with the maze based on who else has gone in and what have they tried? There's a great quote from Alcoholics Anonymous at the end of the day that's, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And so this is probably the thing that I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to solve. I'm definitely trying to address some of the obvious dead ends in the maze through my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. um, the basic problem, if you look at, you know, 10 startups that fail and one startup that succeeds is that it's actually very hard to disentangle the quality of team or lack of skill from the lack of execution. 
And then there's a whole timing piece. Mm. So there's so many different variables that this is very much an art and not a science at all. The closest thing to a solution that I've been thinking about doing is some sort of open knowledge graph or sort of ontology for all business activity, maybe rank ordered by, you know, US GDP. Mm. And so you could sort of tag every startup and the amount that was raised. I mean, Crunchbase should probably do this. And then yeah, what you need like to do is... like actually like starting to map the idea maze a little that's bit. That's right. If you can time. map the maze yeah, through time, it. that would actually help founders a lot. It would probably help VCs a lot. And that's sort of treating the startup game as almost a research project, right? Yeah. Um, but hmm. that framework is super useful because it actually gives you parameters to make the situation better. The bad version of this in Silicon Valley is, again, a tournament model, not that different hmm. than... Uh, trying to become partner at a law firm, right? It's, you know, grist for the mill. Um, yep. I often worry about this because that's the part that I think is zero sum. And, you know, that's not the world that I want to live in, right? I love your idea of, and maybe this is part of the motivation, like you said, with your YouTube videos or trying to map the maze a little bit is it's very high leverage if we can get all the folks that are either founding companies or building companies or thinking about doing either of the two to have a higher resolution picture in their mind of how to navigate the idea maze. Because if you can propagate that across a network of people, not just in the Bay Area, in sort of the core of Silicon Valley, but across the world, you have more entrepreneurs and founders that have a better chance of building the right thing. And in a non-zero-sum world, there's many people that can get to the middle of the maze and win. That's right. It's not, you know, I get there first or you have to lose for me to win type of thing. And so it actually seems very high leverage to create something like that and to do it from the standpoint of not trying to maybe build a company or monetize it per se. Maybe there is a company there, maybe there's not, but it's just to do it to improve and up level the whole ecosystem. Yeah. 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 I mean, the thing is, this is already happening in the minds of uh, VCs across Sand Hill and around the world. And then everyone has their incomplete maze. Yeah. They only see, you know, the pitches that they take. I think that that's why this is one of the most interesting times to live in the world to date, because what the internet and what software lets us do is transcend basically the individual, right? Mm. The limitations of, I only have you know, 120 hours of wakefulness times 365 times however many years I get to be on the earth. And the internet and software done right allows us to bridge that across m many people. Yeah. The way bees build like a hive or something like that, you can all contribute to something that is a multi-generational, durable knowledge source uh, that can be passed on from generation of creators and entrepreneurs. To yeah. the, to and that's, that's the most meaningful thing you can do in your life, right? Yeah. The great quandary in life is that, you know, the more free you are, the fewer sort of dependencies you have on other people, the more disconnected you are from them mm. and, and vice versa. That's why man's search for meaning is often about being a part of something greater than themselves. Yep. And we live in this time now where that is literally what is happening using software. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't even connected those things before, but that's a great reference to, to man's search for meaning. How do you think in a post-COVID-19 world, it seems like the idea maze thing still holds true. It's just that we're in a very, very interesting paradigm shift where a lot of maybe themes that we've talked about for years are going to get accelerated. Maybe some are going to get decelerated. The world coming out of this is going to look fundamentally different than it certainly looked a month or two ago. How do you think about that? How do you think about navigating the post-COVID-19 world, both as an investor 
that's placing bets on founders. And as a founder who's dealing with a whole new set of inputs in terms of how reality has shifted. That's a very deep question. I think there's sort of a pessimistic view and an optimistic view. Pessimistic view is can the overall financial system sort of survive this? If you look at earnings, if you look at activity, this is uh, sort of unprecedented in modern times. And what if the overall financial system suffers greatly? The SBA loans are very inefficient, mass job loss. It's very hard to restart these businesses. That makes the recovery very slow. And that's where you're seeing, you know, people like Chamath. But, you know, honestly, we also have sort of said that to some of our companies that, you know, you maybe need to be prepared for 30 months of runway, which is actually longer than what a lot of people actually have. And that's very dangerous. The optimistic view is that we also have a money printer that hopefully perhaps guided by some software increasingly could be more and more effective. That, you know, if we have that money printer and it is applied judiciously and properly, which is a big if, there can be a V-shaped recovery. And while startups will suffer, some get massive injections of basically zero CAC that they can turn into enterprise value like Instacart or we funded a meal kit company called Gobble that's Mm. very, very quickly. And, you know, especially for consumer startups, just zero CAC is so powerful. Incredibly powerful. So there are going to be cases where there are sort of slingshot stories that are actually amazing. And then a lot of it is a little bit out of our own power. It's up to uh, the Fed, it's up to our government and the SBA, the banks, and these are very large systems that, you know, it's not clear what will happen yet. Yeah, I think there's an incredible level of uncertainty in anybody that has any level of certainty about how this is going to play out is almost by definition wrong. And so... Hope for the um, best, prepare for the worst is basically the best that anyone can do right now. Completely. So you and your uh, business partner, Alexis, are both dads, and he has a really great podcast called Business Dad, which I thought was a very cool idea for a podcast. How has parenthood changed your life and how do you find a balance between work and family, particularly in quarantine, but just more in general? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge for, I mean, people told me you just don't have a visceral understanding of it until it actually happens to you. I just can't work the way I did in my 20s and my early 30s. You know, I could take, you know, 100 hour weeks and max it all the way out and really optimize for work and to the detriment of all other things. And that's just not something you can do when you have a family and you have real responsibility to these little ones who, you know, you didn't have to have them. And um, that's something that I think about every single day. And it it means that we have to work way smarter. It uh, means that we have to actually invest very deeply in our organizations and in basically, again, trying to get leverage on whatever hours in the day that you can work. And that's extra true right now with no childcare. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one thing that we've really encouraged our portfolio founders to do is, you know, especially if founders don't have kids, really take note and realize how hard it is for the parents in their organizations right now. Like be yeah. extra mindful of that. Because, you know, people who don't have kids, man, they're learning French. Like they have all these hours <laughs> in the day. It's great. They binged all of Tiger King. That's I'm right. Like, it's snacking I in place. like one episode. I, I barely snuck it in one night when my daughter That's right. was. Yeah, I think parenthood's interesting in the sense that definitely my 30s have been very different from my 20s in terms of just my time and my, my availability to just kind of work all the time. But on the upside, I would say, 
it is a really interesting forcing function around focusing and prioritizing in the right areas because you have limited time, right, as a parent, because you're, you're going to spend time with your family and you should. I also think it just gives you sort of a deeper reason for why you're doing what you're doing. I think back to my 21-year-old self, and I was, you know, just me. I was just by myself, and I was just working, and, and it's a great time to really learn a lot of skills and to put, you know, 80, 100 hours a week in. But compared to now, I, I would not want to go back to that because I think I'm, I have a much deeper appreciation for why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and who I'm doing it for. I mean, most like explicitly, right? It's just you want to provide for your family. You want to provide for this next generation that's coming up behind you. So they have a shot to go and do what they want to do. And so I think being a parent has been one of the most mind-altering, mind-blowing experiences. I think that people undersell it. And there's certainly challenges. I'm not here saying it's, it's easy all the time, but be a parent. It will, it will alter your mind in a lot of different ways. Oh, that's, yeah. been, that's been my experience. Dad bod is a real thing. <laughs> Dad bod your body chemistry too. Yeah. So you're creating all these awesome YouTube videos. Talk about the impetus for wanting to do that. And what does being a creator and really just operating in a very creative mindset around, you know, cinematography and around filming and story. What does that, what does that do for you beyond just obviously creating really great content with really insightful advice? Yeah. Honestly, I started doing it because I met Casey Neistat in person through mm-hmm. Alexis and I always was a big fan of his YouTube channel. And then after I meditated on it a while, I realized, you know, this is sort of the perfect bringing together of all of my various interests. I love music. I love film. And then I have a way to have a direct relationship with possibly thousands of people. And then I've you know, been doing Twitter for a long time, mm-hmm. but now this can be a much more potent version of it where you know, I can sort of basically spend like five or 10 minutes with people who follow me on YouTube. And already that's been really powerful. It's just a different yeah. way. It's literally a different consciousness, actually. Yeah. And it's a brand new one that is very unnatural, but also very interesting. And then it lets me sort of exercise all of my creative juices. And, you know, I can film and edit and, you know, choose music and put it all together in a matter of maybe two hours a week or Mm -hmm. maybe an hour and a half a week. That's pretty good. It's a really great way to scale yourself, right? Because you're having conversations with founders and you're talking with people on Twitter but the video is almost like the deep cut. I mean, you'll share something on Twitter and Twitter's great. I love Twitter as well. But if folks want to go a level deeper and kind of have the face-to-face thing without you having to be in a thousand Zoom meetings a day, the YouTube channel is really great. And YouTube's been around a while. It's very easy to sort of just take that medium for granted. But it actually is really semi-miraculous that asynchronously at any time, folks can tune in to your latest thoughts and really almost have like a mentor-mentee relationship at scale without needing to, to, you know, carve up your time into, you know, five minute increments for 80 hours a week. So I think one of the deeper things that uh, Alexis and I talk a lot about is, you know, going back to the fifth estate and going back to overall what's happening with the internet today. This is actually a part of it. Just being able to have a direct channel to people is very powerful. And then, you know, while I respect the fourth estate and a lot of my friends are actually reporters and, you know, they're great. They serve a very important role in society. And at the same time, like I also want to be able to have a channel that is unmediated and unfiltered. Yeah. Twitter gives me that. And then yeah. 
YouTube gives me like a whole other style of that, that, you know, not only can I say what I really want and what I think that, you know, people need to hear to just try to help them. I also can sort of highlight the people in my life who I think more people should pay attention to. Yeah. You know, I, I need to have you on my channel as well. Love, so. No, we'll definitely do it. As soon as we're out of quarantine, let's, let's make that happen. I think yeah, you're right. Totally. I think it's about amplifying voices that need to be heard and, yeah, not having a gatekeeper for everything that, that you want to get out into the world is a really powerful thing that the internet's provided to us. So we're in the last two innings probably of the podcast. One thing that I wanted to try, and we can keep this relatively quick. I have not really tried this before, oh, but yeah. it's this idea of turning the tables where for the oh, next question, you're the host of the podcast. And so you can fire a question my way and I'm obviously unprepared for what it is and, and you may be unprepared to ask it, but just kind of a fun little segment and then we'll get to the last few questions that I ask every guest. Yeah, of course. So in 2014, you posted a high rate of learning is the most bankable asset you can have in the startup world. And I'm curious, you know, it's been six years since then. Has that changed? You know, are there stories from the past six years that, you know, really exemplify that? And how do you think that's evolved uh, today in 2020? That's a great question. I think to be honest, it's probably one of the blog posts that I wrote back in the day that maybe has more or less stood the test of time. I think I still believe it pretty deep down in my core. If you're ever in a position where your learning starts to decline and you think about learning as some sort of curve or slope and it starts to plateau, even if a lot of the other things are going well from like a, like a work standpoint, I think that's a problem because I think there's an opportunity cost of not continuing to climb whatever the next learning curve is. And I think that the proof of this is, and I kind of get to this at the end of the piece, which is that you look at people, the Warren Buffetts of the world, you know, Charlie Mungers, uh, even people like, you know, Mark Cuban, whoever, folks that have been successful in business by every conceivable metric. Why do they keep playing the game? Why, you know, at what, 80 years old, is Warren Buffett still sort of playing the game. And I think it's proof that learning actually is the end unto itself. And so, yes, I think when you're 20, 25, 30, 35, I think a leading indicator on your success in work is going to be climbing all these learning curves. The great thing about startups can be, and this isn't universally true, but it can be that you're put in a position in a scenario where it's almost trial by fire and you're going to learn a lot faster. It's those quick iteration cycles that you talked about. It's quick decision-making kind of at the type two versus type one level. And so it's a great accelerant for your rate of learning, which I think ultimately earns compound interest and ultimately reflects in other metrics, whether you're looking at compensation or whether you're looking at the type of company you work for or anything like that. The one caveat I would say is that post is pretty startup centric. And I think for maybe a Silicon Valley audience, that's relevant. But I think for folks generally, I think that sometimes going outside of your comfort zone and switching into an area, whether it's like you said, starting to make videos or doing a podcast, which is not something that really came naturally to me at all. I think that is where you start to learn is when you flex out of your little zone of comfort into new areas. And I think that beyond career and work, it's a good approach life this way. I think parenthood is a learning curve. I think uh, becoming fit and learning how to be more mindful is a learning curve. And so I think I have a more holistic view on it, but I think generally the headline of learning being the most important metric, certainly in work, but possibly in life, I think I still generally believe that. Well, it's, uh, it's, there's levels to it. And then the game sort of is infinitely deep. <laughs> yes. yes. Like, like, like layers of an onion. Totally agree. That's so sure. these last few questions are questions that I ask every guest. You can take them in any direction that you want. 
The first one is a question that you already referenced earlier on. It's actually a modification of the Peter Thiel question, the interview question. But what is something that you believe that most people don't? So most people believe there's too much capital chasing uh, too few ideas and too few good people. And I don't think that at all. I think that there are basically infinite problems to solve. And then there are actually infinite number of really, really smart driven people near infinite. It's certainly not actually infinite because <laughs> there are a finite number of people. But I do believe that given the right circumstance and the right frankly, community, the right values, people can actually really change and really make a difference, not only in their own lives, but in the lives of the people around them. And the onus is on the people who are actually creating those systems to think through the needs of those people. So great founders are great designers, and they're truly actually empaths. They're actually thinking about all the stakeholders, you know, the customers, the people who are all sort of involved. It's a dance, right? You're throwing a great party. And a great party planner sort of thinks about all of the things, thinks about every last detail. And we need a lot more of those people. We need a lot more parties and we need a lot more yeah. great party planners. And it's not easy to do any of those things. It's not easy to start a company, but that's what is needed because that's how we solve problems. Yeah, the too much capital, not enough ideas to deploy it against is a meme that's pretty broad-based. I mean, you hear it all the time. And I think that obviously we know each other kind of through Twitter and I followed you for a number of years, but in this conversation, really what I'm hearing is that a big part of your life's work, whether it's through, you know, investing in founders through initialized or building companies previously or uh, doing the YouTube channel or sharing ideas broadly and freely is around this idea that, look, there's a lot of people that can build really great things. It's not as limited as we think. The ceiling is much, much, much higher than we can even imagine. And so by empowering people, either with advice or with capital or with a word of encouragement or with uh, an idea and insight, it's actually executing against that belief that, that most people don't hold. So that's super cool how, how intertwined that belief is with, with what you do. That's the life work. That's what I signed up for. Yeah. But it's testimony. Like this stuff changed my life. Um, yeah. And I believe, and I see it. I see it over and over again. They're just amazing people who are doing things that really matter. And um, it's not all that, obviously, but let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? There are bad actors in Silicon Valley. There are founders who are just in it for the money or the power. And, you know, that's always been true in society, but there are the good ones out there. Look for the helpers, look for the builders. Mm. That's awesome. I love that. What's a problem that you're concerned about that most people are not? I think um, going from very little privilege to a lot more after graduating from Stanford. I realize now how much the credential matters. And then the danger is that there's a credential trap then. Hmm. So if you didn't go to the right school or you didn't get in through some application process, you didn't get into YC, you know, these are things that are gates to society that close people off from the futures that they want to have. And I think that's a very profound and dangerous thing in society. Yeah. So I don't have a solution for it, but, you know, this is actually a, a fundamental theme of Westworld too. It's that people get, you know, sort of trapped and there needs to be a way to both awaken, but then escape. Hmm. That's fascinating. Going back to the early part of the discussion around folks with the credentials, maybe it's in the media or in the government to... Um, be decision makers or narrative makers. I think what we've learned 
especially in the last 30 to 45 days. A lot of this stuff is, is broken. I mean, we look at the education system, we look at the college debt crisis, there's something fundamentally wrong about credentialism. And I think there's a, there's like a rising backlash against it. It's unclear to me what the solution is. But I think like you said, if you want folks to be able to really improve their standard of living and chase after whatever it is that they want to do, credentialism is antithetical to that. It's a problem that needs to be solved. And it means that a lot of the institutions that we have, whether it's, I don't know, some of the four-year colleges or whether it's some of the media institutions or whether it's certain aspects of federal, local, and state government, that's going to need to change. And I don't know what shape it's going to take. I have, I have no idea, particularly now. I'm, I'm probably less certain now than ever on how that's going to shift. But I think it, the thing that I'm certain about is that it's going to need to shift because these yeah. old templates, these old models for how we help people improve their lot in life, a lot of them are not working. So. Yeah. Teal talks about this recently, I think in the last year, he talked about how some of the top colleges are, I won't name names, but they're actually like lines for a nightclub, right? Yeah. And, Studio um, 54, I think yes, is what he calls, is what he calls right. Harvard, which I think yeah. is hilarious. You know, why, why can't those credentials actually expand by a yeah. lot? And, yeah. you know, Especially I think with that, the internet, there's no reason why it can't. It's just, it's just literally, it's the nightclub thing. It's like, if everyone's in your nightclub, your nightclub's not the hot nightclub. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to figure that out as a society. Last question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? This is pretty easy, actually. When I was 16 years old, I interned at actually one of the first digital agencies in San Francisco called Adjacency. The founder of that firm, Andrew Sather, ended up selling that company for I think 50 or 80 million dollars to one of the public digital agencies and the coolest thing is he worked on the first apple online store hmm. and i learned how to write Perl and write database applications working at that firm and i asked him you know well you started this how did you get all these people to work for you and how did you do all of this and he took me aside and said well you're an engineer right now and there's going to be a really big impetus from every part of your life. You know, it's the guidance counselor to your professor, to your parents, to put down one title on your resume. And I encourage you to not allow that to direct how you actually live your life and how you study and what you try to do. So you're not, you know, a Perl database backend engineer. Learn design, learn front-end engineering, learn marketing learn sales, be a study of human psychology, be a study of media, be a study of business, of corporate finance. Like there's no task or discipline that is beyond you. You can learn it all. And if you want to be CEO, you actually need to be able to do that. You don't have to be the best at all of those things. You should probably be great at a few of those. But if you can understand and manage all of those functions, then you will truly be fit to lead. I think that's fantastic advice. Sometimes there is a cultural pressure to put people in boxes. We like to categorize everything. I think we over-categorize things. And so to truly just break out of that and just say, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be put in a box is a very liberating thing. And I think we want more people to do that. I think the more people that do that in society that just break the mold and continue to break the mold, the better society becomes because people are, are actually uh, gravitating towards their true north and their true talents. So 
I love that advice. It's fantastic. I am so, not a number. I am a free exactly, man. Exactly. So if folks, particularly early stage founders, want to reach out, what's the best way for them to get connected with you? So right now I am open DMs on Instagram. So that's sort of the best way to get in touch. Hit me with a follow and DM nice. me anytime. Awesome. Well, Gary, this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, really, really, truly enjoyed it. And so nice to actually connect face-to-face despite being in quarantine after uh, several years of going back and forth on Twitter. But thanks for carving out time. I really, really appreciate how generous you were with your time today. Thank you so much for having me. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute-length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number nine, I chatted with Jeff Morris Jr. about investing in a post-COVID-19 future, non-linear career paths in times of economic uncertainty, moving to Kansas to break into tech, and the unbundling of talent. So I um, went back to San Francisco and I was applying to all these companies and had some, I guess you could say, bad luck or maybe it worked out as it was meant to be, but I applied to be one of the first 15 employees at Uber. I, I rented a, a desk space at this place called Rocket Space, which was probably the original WeWork in San Francisco. And I sat next to the early Uber team. I had the table next to me and I applied to join their team. Made like a 50-page deck and they wouldn't interview me. Applied to Twitter, where my brother-in-law worked. I think I would have been like a top 100 or 150 employee there. Didn't get that. And then applied to Airbnb as like a top 50 employee and didn't get that. And so I was kind of like, shit, like I I found a lot of good companies. I wish I was an investor back then, but (laughs) yeah, clearly a knack for identifying good companies early. That was a good sign. That was a special time period too. I I would say there was more white space, but then I went to South by Southwest and met this team from, from a company called Zarly, which had just raised like a million dollars the day before at a startup weekend in, in LA from folks like Ashton Kutcher and other people. And it was just a really exciting idea. I followed the, the hiring manager on Twitter. He posted a job. I was the first person to apply at 2 a.m. Got on the phone with them the next day. They hired me to a two-month contract, depending on me moving to Kansas City within 24 hours. And I just said, you know, fuck it. I'm going to go do this. At least I'll be in the tech industry. And then I can kind of figure it out from there. And ended up staying there for about three over three years, but that was that was how I got my job. It wasn't it wasn't glamorous. I had to move to Kansas City to to break into tech, and I think it's easy to like see people on Twitter and think they're different from you, or they, you know, it was like the path was like much more obvious. But for me, it was like the, the least obvious path to to getting where I'm now. A quick housekeeping note: we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.